This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 634. We are welcome Dr. Jennifer Sommel and Kirk Phillips. We're going to talk today about total exposure health and total worker health, a somewhat new concept for uh, our, at least for our listeners. And looking forward to talking to two of the leading experts in that area. Before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing IAQ Radio Plus. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org, the Restoration Industry Association at RestorationIndustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org, and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at HB2021-America.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at GrayWolfSensing.com, TSI Inc. at TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals at SunbeltRentals.com, April Air at AprilAIRE.com, and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Bruce White, Fountain Valley, California, for identifying detonation of the first atomic bomb in a test at Alamogordo, New Mexico, as the Big Bang that occurred on July 16th. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, July 30th, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in the precision instrumentation for monitoring of the indoor air. Learn how to expand your IQ investigations at TSI.com. Here is I, today's IQ Radio trivia question. Who was the first scientist to demonstrate that a cancer may be caused by an environmental carcinogen? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Dr. Jennifer Sommel is a managing principal scientist with insight exposure and risk sciences in Boulder, Colorado. She's a certified industrial hygienist and certified safety professional with 25 years of experience in exposure assessment science and workplace health and safety. She's worked in a variety of public and private sector positions, including U.S. EPA's Office of Pollution Prevention and Toxics, the National Park Service, and Comprehensive Health Services at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She earned her MPH degree in environmental health and industrial hygiene from the University of California at Berkeley and her PhD in environmental health at the University of Minnesota. She's also active in the AIHA and is a past member of their national board of directors. <clears throat> Colonel Kirk A. Phillips, retired, currently holds the position of director, Air Force Office of Energy Assurance in Washington, D.C. Prior to his current position, Kirk was health and safety environmental practice leader and vice president at LJB, Inc. In 2018, he retired as the BSC Associate Chief for Bioenvironmental Engineering in the office of the Air Force Surgeon General. In 2014, he developed the Total Exposure Health as a strategic initiative to institutionalize primary prevention work, environmental, and lifestyle exposures. Mr. Phillips entered the Air Force after from a four-year Air Force ROTC scholarship in 1985. He got his BS in aerospace engineering and his MS in engineering and environmental management. 
Colonel Phillips has held a broad range of leadership positions throughout the Air Force. All right, I did it. I didn't even stumble too bad. Uh, feeling great to have you. Welcome, Kirk and Dr. Samal. Thank Samuel. You. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Great to have both of you. A little background first. Uh, let's start with you, Kirk. Tell us a little bit about your current position and uh, some of your current maybe uh, volunteer activities, I guess, with AIHA and others. Absolutely. So I've spent my career working in the broad areas of environmental safety and health. Um, I was a certified industrial hygienist for 20 years, um, now mainly doing uh, management and speaking. So I don't continue that. But one of the things about my career is that I really saw exposures in all areas, both work exposures, home exposures, and uh, with my environmental engineering, the environmental exposures. And with that and working in the medical field, I really could see the advances in medicine as well and where as exposure scientists, we could participate to really make a difference for true primary prevention. I currently lead the office that does all energy for the Air Force uh, and all water for the Air Force. And so I'm still working uh, water quality, but a whole lot more uh, as we right now are moving to the Air Force to be completely resilient in energy matters. Interesting. Interesting. Let's go to you, Dr. Sawmill. What, what's your current position? I know you're managing scientists, but I'm not familiar with uh, insight exposure and risk sciences. Yeah, so my current position is as a consultant, and I work uh, with a wide range of different kinds of entities, uh, governments, and uh, private uh, uh, private industry and, and other types of uh, entities, as well as trade associations. And uh, really, the work that I do now is, is an has uh, been enabled by the work that I've done in the past, which we've really kind of built on over time. I uh, started my uh, career in the in the government, working as a consultant first, and then as a contractor, as well as as a government employee. And uh, through that time, I've really developed a, a keen interest and in, an experience in uh, risk assessment as it relates to industrial hygiene and all manner all manner of different types of uh, concerns for which we might have a risk or need to characterize the risk um, and also the area of exposure science so understanding how we characterize exposures how we measure exposures uh, a particular area of interest for me is dermal exposure assessment and I have uh, done quite a bit of research in that area and that's led me to this uh, also uh, interest and in research in the area of total worker health and total exposure health, and then also this sort of subset of that total worker exposure, as that might relate to how we might want to better characterize the holistic or total exposures uh, to both individuals and workers specifically, uh, as it relates to dermal exposures, inhalation exposures. And then, of course, we have this, this unique, uh, I think, uh, evolution of our workplaces, and especially we've seen this year after the pandemic, uh, that the lines between the workplace and home have really blurred, and we no longer have the traditional workplace that we used to have. And so we, uh, we do want to be able to consider and understand and characterize what exposures might be to our uh, workers in all of those environments that they're operating, uh, potentially as employees and as official uh, agents of their uh, organization. Yeah, I think this hits on something that's frustrated indoor environmental quality people for years. You know, we look at somebody's workplace, but we don't see where they're at the other whatever, uh, you know, 12, 14 hours of the day, maybe 16 hours of the day. They're somewhere else and, and we don't get to look at that or, or even really discuss it very much. So I find this very interesting. It's, it's kind of new, I think, to everyone. Uh, Kirk, you developed this concept back in, what was it, 2014? Is that accurate to say? I did. And um, it became, a, for the DOD, it became a, a, a strategic objective for them uh, where they realized that they needed to deal, you know, have individuals' um, health in mind and that they needed to consider more than just the workspace. And then... Um, uh, AIHA had me as their keynote speaker at two of their national conferences, at which point uh, uh, after that, they did create a strategic priority themselves. And I've been the chairman of the, uh, that uh, priority team. And really the I idea here is industrial hygienists realize, or AIHA realizes that we are exposure scientists. There's nobody better than us all. And this is of course IAQ professionals as well to really understand and get after 
that exposures don't stop at the threshold of the workplace. And if we're really going to serve the community and our society with our skills, we need to really consider um, what happens before and after. Does not mean that we have to control it, but we have to consider it. And each person, each professional working in their exposure area is able to uh, do a part to consider the whole. And so if uh, one of the things to keep in mind is if all your employer wants is the workplace exposures, that's fine. But professionally, we know we have to consider whether the, the for instance, you have quiet time at not night if you've been in a noisy environment. So it's responsible, our responsibility even then is to understand somewhat those exposures that are beyond just the, the workplace. And um, so with all of these totals, we realize that um, we all have a place to do uh, what we do in a more comprehensive way. I, you mentioned DOD, the story is this is like uh, military wide kind of concept now is the entire military now using this total worker health as part of what they do with respect to health and safety? So the, the DOD considers it had total worker health for a long time because they have social, um, you know, um, social services and psychiatrists and, and uh, public health professionals and commanders that are all making sure that they're thinking about the whole person concept. And then total exposure health um, really hit the military significantly when you think about uh, the burn pits and Gulf War syndrome and the realization that um, there's a lot of things that are happening that are not part of the, the, the workday that are exposures. Um, they do move slow, so uh, they are doing it, but you, wouldn't, we, you won't uh, see right now, uh, just like everybody, they're, they're getting these as well as you know, all the other types of things are trying to get done, uh, you know, fully implemented. And they really look towards AIHA as well. You know, the industrial hygienists in the DOD are saying, hey, AIHA, what is the profession of industrial hygiene? And so that's been very helpful that we're all in lockstep. And I would say other parts of government and industry as well. Interesting. And then in the military, they also oftentimes control the housing of these folks. So they're already involved in total worker health, whether they like it or not. That's right. So, you know, I had 10,000 homes I was responsible for when I was in Okinawa. And um, I did lead-based paint surveys and got called when somebody's um, drain backed up and they're worried about, you know, the sewage and uh, whether uh, when their child drank something under the sink and needed emergency um, understanding of what was the uh, chemicals in that something. Um, so uh, there is a, a benefit when uh, you own a home that somebody's living in and they're also your worker to help with those exposures. But that's not really the norm for everybody and it doesn't need to be. It, we really need to just understand that we won't ever control people in their homes, but we don't need to. Uh, people want to be healthy and they really just want information about what makes the, will make them healthy. And so um, asking them a few questions about what they're doing at home and providing them some advice um, and allowing them to see people like IAQ professionals to come collect data when necessary is all incredibly helpful to understand that total exposure and then total health picture. Let me jump over to Dr. Samuel. You, um, you've been involved with AIHA for a long time, a past member of their national board. How is this going over within the membership, if you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, question right on. In fact, we just did a, a very lively debate on this topic as part of our national conference this year, for those of you who may have attended the, uh, the national um, AIHCE conference uh, back virtually here back in May. And uh, there are certainly some significant questions that uh, individuals have, but it's very much a topic of interest and discussion right now. Uh, I think uh, what I've been encouraging the association to do and a number of others as well, is to look at this as an opportunity for uh, expanding the um, the use of all the, as Kirk mentioned, the use of the tools and expertise that we've developed within the association as exposure scientists. And the ability uh, to evaluate exposures is not just limited to the workplace, of course. The skills and, and methods that we've developed over many, many years 
are very applicable to these other types of scenarios. And what we don't want to do is to, um, is to sor sort of create the uh, assumption or concern that somehow we're trying to control uh, individuals outside of the workplace or dictate what they should or should not be doing. It's more about this characterization and, and being able to understand better what those exposures are, uh, how they might be influencing someone's exposure inside the workplace. For example, uh, lead exposure is one where if somebody has a hobby that involves fishing or or shooting, you might have a potentially measurable exposure to lead, which then would contribute to your overall body burden of lead if you also have some workplace exposure. And so uh, not looking at that holistic picture could make uh, a difference for a person in terms of their overall health. And so I think we really hope that we can start to look at this as an opportunity for uh, trying to uh, use the methods we've already developed to get a better understanding of what exposures are outside the workplace, how they compare between the workplace and, and lifestyle or, or hobbies or home, and, uh, and try to help educate individuals about making them making their lifestyles healthier, making their families healthier, and, uh, and, and really also thinking maybe about the uh, ability to uh, make or have our workers be active volunteers or partners in this process. As Kirk mentioned, uh, everybody wants to be healthier. Everybody wants to have more information about how to become healthier, have a, have a better lifestyle and, and well-being. And this is a great opportunity for AIHA and for the IAQ community to be involved in that process and to help uh, become uh, active partners in the process of improving all of our health. Interesting. Why don't we go to the slides now? I see some good chat conversation. We'll get back to that in a moment. But uh, I'd like to kind of just go through the slides real quick and give people a little better understanding of what this whole concept is. Um, Jennifer, uh, you want to run us through this and, and then pass back and forth between you and Kirk? That's perfect. Yeah, we'll, we'll kind of do this very informally and quickly. And, uh, and I will... Kirk asked you to weigh in on a few of these as well as, as we go through. So I, I just wanted to point out, obviously, we've got this huge list of this chemical or not chemical soup, but uh, this alphabet soup, really, of all these different terms. And I, I think one of the things we've uh, Kirk and I, along with a couple of our other colleagues, Deborah Nelson and um, Chris Lassus Davis, have been hoping to do is to try to help put some definitions and context around these terms that we're seeing thrown around your total worker. Uh, health, total exposure health, total worker exposure, and what we're calling the totals uh, kind of as a group. Uh, next slide, please. And, uh, and so we really do want to be able to uh, help folks understand what these different concepts mean, where we as IAQ professionals or industrial hygienists can really make a difference in um, starting to promote these concepts to bring our expertise to the table in evaluating you know, some of these issues that maybe where we've got the blurred lines between the workplace and, uh, and the home or, or the community and the environment and understanding that we do want to understand what people's complete exposures are and, and how that can really help improve their health. Kirk, is there anything you wanted to weigh in on this slide? I would just say that on, on the uh, grouping here, this is the terms, but we're gonna show you at the very end of this presentation, a really great Venn diagram. So if, if it keeps, being a little bit confusing as we talk about the three different areas, we're going to talk about just weight, and we're going to show you a really great way to put it together by population and then uh, by, uh, by exposure. That's okay. great. Thanks. Next one. Next slide, please. So here's just a few examples of maybe kind of putting into context what we're talking about here. We've got individuals today routinely working in their home. We see this in a big, uh, very busy uh, looking office here. And uh, of course, this past year, many people working out of their home all the time and maybe continuing now going forward, working out of their home uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, when they're um, and not having an office to go to at all. Uh, we see uh, individuals blurring the lines between family and work and having to juggle those in a much more uh, potentially challenging way. Uh, individuals now use their car as a workplace on a routine basis, and whether that's just driving back and forth between events or to the office or being an actual um, uh, paid driver, such as th through a, um, a driving service. Mm -hmm. And then also individuals who are extending their uh, work life into their retirement and, and continuing to work more uh, than, uh, than traditionally was, uh, was sort of the life, the traditional work lifetime. Next slide, please. 
So just a couple of exa other examples, I think, just to help sort of put this, this notion in context, what we're talking about. These are a couple of examples of uh, some successful, I think, total exposure health programs that we see out there. Um, and so, for example, there are air quality monitoring programs that individual citizens can get involved with. And CitySense is a, a volunteer program where you can uh, develop a, a special sensor or have a special sensor that you can put onto your phone. And as you're walking around in uh, your own city or in your own environment, uh, your sensor then is collecting data from your phone and then collecting it and saving it and sending it into a central repository so that you're helping to characterize what, for example, optical density for air quality might be uh, in various areas of a city, both indoors and outdoors, in buildings and outside, so that we can uh, help to fill in those gaps where we don't have uh, traditional measurement data. And there's several uh, programs out there that are doing that, and, and they're often seeking volunteers and citizens, what we call citizen scientists to help them with this process. And so the more that we can engage uh, individuals to help us in a, in a voluntary way, because I think a lot of times folks want to have this data and be more involved in it. I think we've got a great opportunity here uh, to really improve our knowledge about uh, some of these exposures. Next slide, please. Uh, the other thing that we know, of course, is that unfortunately in many aspects of uh, health, we are seeing declines in health. For example, we have fewer people today reporting that they consider themselves to be in excellent health. Uh, we have limitations in mobility that we're seeing more than we used to. Uh, individuals who are more limited in their uh, functional um, capacity or, or ability to work. Uh, we see obesity increasing. Uh, we see exercise decreasing. So many different, I think, trends that could be concerning that we could help uh, to address with some of these programs. Next slide, please. So we want to just really think of this as one of the pieces of the puzzle in helping us to better, uh, better enhance and improve the well-being of, of workers, whether they're in the workplace or outside, and looking at ways to partner with our workers as active volunteers uh, to want to become more engaged in this process. Next slide, please. And, you know, a lot of you as IAQ professionals are very familiar with the traditional hierarchy of controls for uh, industrial hygiene. And, uh, we wanted to just point out that there are ways to, uh, uh, similar, just as we would for other more traditional stressors, chemical or physical or biological, we can also use this to uh, uh, to approach well-being. And so we want to be able to eliminate uh, threats to well-being or do substitutes, uh, health-enhancing policies, redesign workplaces where where possible or where needed for improving well-being, and then of course education and personal change. So we can look at this in a, in a very traditional way with industrial hygiene as well. Next slide, please. So, and then I talked a little bit about this notion of total worker exposure, which really we've only defined in terms of, obviously it's just a subset of the total process and a subset of what Kirk has been focused on and talking about, but it's the area that we as professionals, working professionals in this field can maybe have the most impact today. So, but we know that there's a pretty big opportunity for that with mobile workplaces, again, working from home, subcontractors, uh, where that line is really blurred between where the workplace ends and the homework community begins. And then also we really have this opportunity and maybe even also a responsibility uh, to try to implement these programs that will positively influence health and, uh, and help workers become more understanding of their total exposures, uh, both inside and outside the workplace. Next slide. So again, we want to be thinking about where can the IH or IAQ professionals specifically contribute? Well, we certainly can't be, you know, total worker health professionals. There's also medical issues and policy issues related. We also can't necessarily own the whole notion of total exposure health because we have other types of exposures that we really can't control and don't necessarily want to control for our workers, but just so that we can be able to help them. So we want to be able to, uh, to start to think about expanding our ability uh, to help the workers in psychosocial factors, in stress factors, organizational factors, and other ones that we haven't maybe traditionally considered uh, as uh, professionals in this area and uh, both uh, you know, affecting change and improving worker health. Next slide, please. So there are some complexities here and some, I think this is where I, when I alluded to the debate that the, uh, that was at the uh, conference, the IAIHA conference uh, a few weeks ago, uh, there's some important questions we do want to consider here. For example, is it unethical to collect sampling data for workers outside the workplace? 
But on the flip side, do we have an ethical responsibility to collect this information and share it with our workers? Again, in a way that's voluntary and, um, and uh, confidential and appropriate. Um, and then also, if we do have sampling data collected outside the workplace, how, how could we use this data? How should we use this data? And on the flip side, how should we never use this data? And how should we let everybody know um, that it will be protected and the, the things that we would never do with it? Uh, and then finally, what kinds of roles or actions of the industrial hygienist or the IAQ professional and employers could best serve the workers and their health overall? I think those uh, next question. Some, some questions we're going to have to come back to in the second half. Wonderful. That would be great. Uh, and so I think, you know, there's some great uh uh, ethical principles that have been published on these on these topics. So I think some of the things we want to really focus on are that these programs should be voluntary and not have mandatory participation, especially when we're talking about outside the workplace. But I think we also find that there's lots of uh, workers and especially some younger workers based on recent studies that do have a very keen interest in participation in these kinds of programs and a real interest in understanding more about their health and well-being. Uh, and so transparent data use is critically important. What we will and won't do with data, how we're going to protect data uh, and keep it private when it's appropriate to do so. Um, how we're going to use validated technologies so that the data we do collect are correct and accurate uh, and useful. Um, and then how we're going to limit uh, data collection and not collect things that might be uh, excessively personal in terms of information. And then, and then, of course, finally, secure storage, how we're going to make sure that we keep these data secure and safe from improper use or um, distribution. Next slide, please. And I think there, um, oh, let me just give you one last quick thing here. Um, just wanted to give you some examples of what these programs might look like. Uh, and just again, to give some more context to these concepts. So there's a number of uh, companies out there that have, have done a, uh, various types of programs or created various types of programs to really focus on these questions and, uh, and to help uh, start to collect data on wellness and uh, total uh, exposure health. And so there's, there's some great, programs that are currently ongoing that might be good examples for you in the audience if you're looking for ways to get some more information about these programs. Uh, next slide, please. Thanks, Jennifer. And that's so, it, I'll switch to Kurt. Thank okay. you. So um, very quickly, some of the comments that are coming in, I think people are realizing these critical observations right now. There are fewer and fewer exposures in our workplaces today that are acute. And it's more chronic or long-term or low-level exposures. And here's the great thing, that we weren't able to impact that in the past and couldn't understand it very well from a population standpoint. And that's because these very low exposures have unique components to individuals. And we're learning about that through all the incredible research that's being done on the human genome and the advanced sciences with um, the Internet of Things and, 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 and medicine and essentially the fifth industrial revolution. And so... We will be, and we are already being asked to help answer. And as an IAQ professional, you're being asked to provide some exposure data where the classical understanding of what's an overexposure by a population doesn't seem to cause an impact. This is where we're really changing the thing here. We're really saying, you know what? Maybe most people aren't reacting, but some people will. And it's real and their body's having a real effect from these lower exposures. And so relevancy wise, as we have fewer exposures in the workplace and the overall exposure profile of a work day becomes important to health, we have a way to continue to really uh, apply what, what we do as professionals and make a difference. Next slide. Um, we're gonna, we're talking very fast. There's a total exposure health and introduction by CRC Press. Um, I was involved with this. It's a great book for you to get a primer to learn about this if you're interested. Um, I, I, I get asked all the time, um, how do I find out more? And that's, that's the best way. Next slide. Um, one of the observations is you can't have a healthy population if you just are worrying about people that are ill. You've got to go in there and prevent the disease. And you need buy-in. You've heard Jennifer saying, hey, people need to voluntarily sign up. That's right. You know, one of the things I say is you can go to the doctor and say, I think my arm's broken. And the doctor can say, okay, great. Uh, we'll give you a cast. They don't have to necessarily do an x-ray, especially if you don't want x-rays. But, but you might not get the same kind of medical data and medical care. Same thing with a CAT scan or an MRI. We all make choices in life about how much data we want before a decision's made. And that's the same way it is in exposure. We'll be able to voluntarily decide 
how detailed we want. Do I want to know if I'm susceptible to an exposure in a way that's different than others? If I want that, I can get that. I can buy that on the web these days and it's getting better and better all the time. And then am I going to want the people that are out there supporting me to be able to do something for me? And that's where we're moving to in the future and, and how you can become a part of this. And I think we, uh, we aren't going to be changing those population numbers because they're population. Those will still be the published EPA and OSHA standards, but we really are getting after health here. And where do we need to do something to, for somebody who's unique? We're all unique. We just have to figure out where we're unique. Next slide. So next slide, this one builds. So go ahead and next slide. So we've, we've mentioned, oh, one Mac. So we've mentioned it needs to be uh, your work. When you think about lifestyle environment, clinical is another one, you know, the drugs you take, the x-rays you get are some of the largest exposures you get in those categories uh, mm -hmm. ever. So we need to think about those as well. Next slide. So it's, it's going to, it really is everything, but um, we also, we used to have a doctor in the center of this picture, but it's really the patient or the consumer or the person you're working for. They want good health. They're, they're looking on the internet. They're asking about their physician, about what it is. They're buying a DNA test and having it measured. Um, they're buying their own biosensors. I've got mine, you know, right here and a couple others. And Jennifer talked about your phone being able to use this as a sensor. So they are seeking health. This is a great thing for us. Next slide. So um, if we have, if people have an understanding of where they're unique, great. We can help them more. If not, can we understand where they might be getting low level exposures that could be impactful? Great. We put those together with uh, them and let them tell their physicians that, that information. They're going to be able to do things we never thought of before. Pre-exposure prophylaxis, for instance, a drug that helps uh, you have a lower overall uh, risk to uh, hearing loss, for instance, is available and on the horizon. Next slide. So next slide. It's going to build here a little bit. So we have a standard exposure curve. We have an OEL. Next slide. And of course, we have that area of no effect. And then, you know, the one was increasing effect and then uh, beyond that. And what we realize is that in this picture, back one, in this picture, Al having an exposure. I'll wait. Okay. Al, if, if his exposure, if his response at that very low exposure is that high, Al's not being helped by our current methods. Um, Lily and Kirk being helped great. Rick, wow, has a greater exposure. These are the people that complain about indoor air quality and everybody else says they're fine. And we go, oh, well, Rick's not being truthful or he has something else. No, Rick's different and he needs to be treated differently. And then there are people like Ann down there who could be in an environment none of us would wanna be in and have little effect at all. So we need to realize that the population curve handles the population, but individuals are individuals. Our noise standard, if you don't know it, was set to protect only 70% of our population, 70 to 80%. And that's because we couldn't set noise low enough to protect everybody and still have industry. And so we knew the curve doesn't fit everybody. And in the past, we couldn't get after it. Now we can get after it better. We can find that population and do something for them. Next slide. So uh, in the past, we thought of only limited exposures. Now we can ask more questions. We used to only have limited sensors, but people are buying sensors and we can access them uh, well. And we had paper records. Now we have expert systems looking at these connections, which are going to give us great insights. And we used to think about only uh, trying to do something about uh, prevention from a, a, a post-effect, like you already have some disease, but now we're getting after true prevention. Next slide, and we're getting close to being done here. So uh, at these personal exposure monitoring, people are buying them, they're connecting them to the internet. You can ask for this information. It's very helpful to understand with their permission what their exposures are. Next slide. Also your equipment and others that are using equipment like you use are often enabled and connected to the internet. You, as Jennifer said, there are programs that are gleaning this information as well. And we can understand what are some of the true background. Is their house well above background for their community? We could find that out, which is important. Next slide. So the benefits are we're really positioned to do uh, exposure in a way we've never been able to do. We're going to improve health outcomes. We're going to be able to have small, cheap sensors 
that we can get far more data and we're gonna be able to impact this genetics research to go after things that are most interesting to us versus the next thing that's interested to a geneticist. Next slide. So um, we're gonna make a difference together and that's exciting. Next slide. And I wanna just show you now, uh, if we think about health, the outer square on this is healthcare. That's everything you can think of that fits into health. The smaller, uh, same shape uh, rectangle is preventive health. And within preventive health, some of that can be precision medicine and a lot of it is not precision medicine. But most of, the, of, of it um, can have some exposure related component. And that's that circle, that's exposure health. And like I said, you've got lifestyle, environment, work and clinical. And some of that is just preventive. Some of it is preventive and precision like with genomics. But no matter where you are, you can just with prevention through exposure science, you can get after some of these exposures. Next slide. Now let's talk about populations. Who's being helped by us? Well, from an IAQ community, this is awesome because you're oftentimes helping far beyond the worker. But if you think of the working population, that's the dark colored purple. That working population is somewhat being helped. Total worker health, for instance, helps um, that population. But if they don't have an IH, then they're not getting the exposure piece in the same way. But there's a whole bunch of our population that, uh, that the, the non-workers, the children, the retired and elderly, they all are having exposures as well that impact their health. And we have IHs working as IAQ professionals, as an example, in many of these areas with these populations. They are all included under total exposure health where they wouldn't be included under total worker exposure or total worker health. So this is great because when you think of the totals, you can find where you work and which of the concepts will apply to the kinds of things you're gonna to wanna to do. Interesting. Next, next slide and I think we're done. That was it. Uh, uh, was there one more? Nope. All right, so what I'd like to do here, we're going to stop. We have to thank our sponsors, our halftime. We'll be back in two minutes, and we're going to follow up on that excellent presentation with Dr. Samil and Kirk Phillips. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, at AIHA.org. ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research at CIRIscience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry at IICRC.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9 through 11 at HB2021-America.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring at graywolfsensing.com, TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. 
Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back to the second half of our interview here. And I, what I'd like to do is uh, first ask a question, then I want to go into some of the texts that came in. But you both worked a lot on this. What attracted you to this concept in, uh, to start with? Let's start with Dr. Sommel. Yeah, so for me, as I, as I mentioned just briefly, but I can get into it a little bit more, is that, that I became very interested in this question of the holistic exposures that individuals I might experience in part because of the work that I've done on dermal exposure assessment and, and really observing that while we do have a very, uh, in many cases, a very good understanding of inhalation exposure potential. And I think there's been many good efforts over the last uh, many decades to reduce the potential for inhalation exposures. We don't have quite the same level of understanding and expertise as it relates to dermal exposures today. And so that's really potentially an incomplete part of our, our total exposures when we, when we don't look at this, this full picture of the opportunities that we might have for exposures. And so as part of that, uh, it's led me to this real interest in understanding this more holistic exposure uh, potential, understanding for exposure science purposes, how we might measure and evaluate all of those exposures, how they might interact with each other, as Kirk has talked about, uh, we know we have many questions with respect to the, to mixtures or, or multiple exposures from multiple chemicals by multiple routes. And uh, it's really, I think, a great opportunity for us, again, as Kirk also talked about, to, to really better understand uh, the influence of all these different exposures on worker health, the differences in those kinds of exposures to different individuals. And... Um, to really advance our, our understanding and knowledge. And we really are now just on the cusp of this tremendous opportunity with technology to be able to do that in a much more effective way. Uh, and, and then the other thing I think would, I want to mention is that uh, I think we've done a, a pretty good job in many instances of uh, effectively reducing worker exposures. And sometimes now those exposures in the workplace, which maybe historically many years ago would be much greater than what we would see in the um, uh, in the general community or environment are maybe now equivalent with some of those exposures. And so those uh, consumer or environmental exposures are relatively often more important than they used to be uh, for total exposures to an individual. Okay. And Kirk, what, was there a, like an incident or an issue or a concern in the military or elsewhere that led you to the start the development of this? Yeah, there were actually a number. I'll say the first one was risk to relevancy. I was asked the question many, uh, multiple times, um, demonstrate where you've made a difference. You know, show me the population that because of your work um, is uh, not, you know, is, is uh, better off today. And as we did, as Jennifer said, we reduced these exposures. It was very difficult to show that we had relevancy. And uh, I realized by uh, a video I watched about humans need not apply, that those jobs that have the greatest exposures are the ones that are most likely going to be eliminated out of our workforce. And so there's a true relevancy of uh, occupation. And I began to say, well, I want to make a difference in the world. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, so what's the real situation? And what we saw is there's still a significant number of people that are getting ill through preventable uh, diseases. And that means that we are taking care of the masses, but since everybody's unique, everybody has something they're at risk to. And I began to read up on genetics and understanding the modern uh, science and uh, the way our bodies are responding and realized that it was moving forward without a strong presence of an exposure scientist. They were just working on whatever was the neatest thing. So one of the things I read, which was very impactful to me was the reason why we know about the BRCA gene for breast cancer is because it costs only about $10,000 to remove a breast, but it costs a million dollars to treat breast cancer. And so the insurance companies paid for the gene research to make that part of our 
purchasable gene information. And it wasn't because they care about women and their breasts. It was because they don't want to spend a million dollars when they could spend 10,000, even if they have to spend 10,000 on a lot of people. And, and that's a lot of people that are, uh, that are having a very invasive surgery that is you know, preventive. And I said, well, you know what? There are a lot of people being exposed to things that we could get after. I'll give you an example. The BRCA gene is a 1.7 risk ratio, meaning 70% increased risk. The genes we've identified in um, risk to uh, sprained ankles has a five, meaning five times fold greater risk of a sprained ankle if you have a particular gene. And for noise, we have a gene that makes you 27. The risk factor is 27. So it's 27 times more at risk of hearing loss when you have this particular gene. These are far greater than 1.7. And so I realized that why not participating society was moving in the wrong direction. We have uh, uh, information that is desperately needed by the latest in the medical uh, fields and the genetics fields. If I have that ankle and uh, hearing genes, I don't know. <laughs> I think I might. Um, I want to go to a text, and then I want to give Cliff a chance to jump in here. Uh, the text is, there's, this is, there is a slippery slope here. Yes, exposures outside of work are important to consider, especially in caring for patients with occupational illness. But some may look to environments other than the workplace as an excuse to make necessary improvements to the work environment. How do you, how do you address that concern? Either one. So we want to go first, Jen? No, go ahead, Kirk, and, and I can chime in. All right. We, there's, you know, those population-based exposure requirements and what a workplace uh, needs to do, an employer needs to do to provide a, a minimum healthy environment. Uh, nobody's advocating for that to change. They will still need to meet that. That does not mean everybody will be uh, able to maintain their health in that environment. So I don't really see it as a slippery slope. It's more that buying into either the low or the high level of protection. And um, so from a worker workplace, they're going to need to provide a minimum level. And as an individual, you need to be able to seek out from professionals, somebody to provide services to maintain your true health. Okay. Jennifer, anything you'd like to add? I, no, I think that's right. I, I agree with Kirk. I think that we need to be uh, looking at this both as an opportunity and responsibility, as I've uh, talked about before, and uh, obviously treading carefully in terms of uh, personal information and uh, privacy and looking at, I think, systems that, that we're going to use to uh, provide, uh, uh, I think, a level of comfort to the worker that they are not going to have uh, their information used in a way that wasn't anticipated or that they weren't anticipating or that they didn't agree to. So there's certainly some very important ethics, I think, questions that need to be answered. And one of the, the suggestions that we've talked about in some of our other uh, presentations and programs is to uh, develop a framework around which you're uh, up ahead of time telling your workers, here's here's what we'd like to collect. If you'd like to volunteer, we'd love to have your participation. Here's what we will and will not do with your data. And uh, so here's some, here's some comfort you can have up front. We've thought this through. We're, we're being very careful about this, but we're doing this to try to improve health, to try to improve well-being. And we, we care about our workers and want to, want to make a difference beyond just the minimum you know, OSHA standards or ACGIH standards. All right, let's let's go to the roundup, John, and we'll get a last question for Cliff, myself, and then give our la our guest the last word. The roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. All right, we're back for the roundup. Cliff, I want to turn it over to you real quick. I don't know if you want to do one of the uh, texts. No, I, I, wanted, I, I want to do my, my own question. Uh, okay. it's, really, it's really not my own. Uh, I'm a volunteer on a committee that's writing an international standard on fire damage restoration of buildings. And certainly we are interested in protecting workers and you know, typically what's done in these buildings after the fire department puts it out is the buildings are ventilated. Then we go in and we clean. Uh, the workers are wearing personal protective equipment. 
uh, you know, they'll wear you know, good respirators, good gloves, you know, Tyvek, depending on how, how soiled the environment is. And typically we just wash the interior of the building with, with soap and water and uh, soap and water is recommended to clean a lot of things, you know, pesticides and you know, some other hazardous materials. And the, the question is whether or not we should be doing aggressive testing of these environments prior to cleaning them. And if we did that, it would cost time and it would cost money and it would be difficult sometimes to separate what was in the background that, and, and what is actually fire related, which would really be the insurance company's responsibility. So I know it's a big question. I know it's a big topic and I'm just looking for a little more information or guidance or suggestions from you folks. What would you do? Kirk, you want me to start on this one? Sure, it would be great. So just, I think just briefly, I think it would depend on a number of factors. For example, is anybody uh, currently occupying that space or would they need to occupy that space before uh, the cleaning uh, would occur? So that would obviously be an important uh, consideration. Uh, but, you know, as, as we've talked about today, if we do truly want to understand or characterize the total exposure to an individual, we might want to know something about that environment before the cleaning occurs and after so that we can, number one, demonstrate the value of the cleaning process, uh, validate the methods we're using for the cleaning process, and, uh, and, and demonstrate that, uh, that at the end of the process, we're at a point where we've sufficiently controlled or uh, eliminated exposures. And I'm thinking, of course, especially about dermal exposure. So maybe we've um, gotten a significant amount of uh, the materials that might become airborne, but maybe there's still residual uh, materials on surfaces that could, over a long period of time, still produce a potential for dermal exposures, for example. Okay. Kirk, would you like to add anything? So uh, I, think, I think the key words I heard from Jennifer, which I would definitely agree with, and that is if you need to demonstrate the benefits of what you're doing, that then the pre-sampling and then the post-sampling is going to give you uh, a, a standard to measure against from a population standard. And we, we have uh, experience in this. You all have experience in this and you know uh, sort of, you know, what's good. And we would want to show that we were meeting those standards amounts and below those, those published exposure uh, limits. It also would provide uh, a data point if there was something that was long-term, low level, that would impact a small segment of the population you would have that post-sampling knowledge to be able to provide to a practitioner if they were to ask. So I think that's a valuable data to have. Well, the question is, what would you test for? Because you don't know what's in there. Typically, when, when we're, we're testing, we're looking for something specific. So one of the, case. yeah, so, so it's a difficult question today, but I've got good news on the horizon. I've been working with the University of uh, Utah with developing a, a, a GC mass spec uh, system and that you say, oh, really? Wow, that's, that's amazing, right? But it's also gonna be the size of uh, basically a noise dissimilar. So, uh, you know, it's using microfluidics and can measure all organics simultaneously. So, you know, the future of, of total exposure and the microsensors and the technologies that's moving is that we're not going to have to ask the question of, wow, I've got, I can't spend $100,000 to understand what all the potential exposures, because, you know, when you burn something, depending on the temperature, right. um, almost any organic can be produced, right? So it could be anything. So the answer right now is you're right. You'd have to look for a few carcinogens, maybe dioxin, that kind of thing. Uh, maybe PCBs if electrical fire or something, but in the future and not far from now, you're gonna be able to hang like a 3M badge, something that's gonna give you every, nearly every organic chemical um, at, you know, simultaneously and it won't be that expensive. So uh, I think we'll find a better answer in the future. How soon and how much would that thing cost, you think? Uh, it's gonna, well, um, we need to wait. Okay. <laughs> All right. I got a question from our audience. Does your concept of total exposure put a central focus on cumulative and synergistic low concentration exposures to a complex mix of chemical and microbiological contaminants? Uh, I'm not sure. 
I quite get what we're getting at there, but maybe you do. Kirk? Uh, the short answer is if, if that is where your profession is, total exposure health absolutely does that. That is on the far farther end of being able to get after the totals. And I think that's great that you're thinking that way. You would not be able to fully practice that today, but you could practice it partially by and total worker health as well. Because, you know, when you ask somebody about their stress, you're addressing whether their microbiome is going to be impacted and the chemicals it produces in the body. Um, when you think about long-term, low-level exposures, that's one of them, um, and, and as well as the external ones as well. And so um, absolutely, that is where exposure science is going. Today, um, I think you aren't able to fully achieve that but you can always ask the questions where you believe somebody might be having an impact. Uh, Dr. Sommel, you want to add anything? Yeah, I would say that's absolutely, as Kirk says, the direction we're going with exposure science. And we really have overall relatively little information about these uh, effects of mixtures, low-level ke uh, chemical exposures over a wide range of chemicals and the synergistic uh, potential uh, effects. We really do not have enough information about this today. And uh, I think we're on the cusp, as Kirk is saying, of being able to really start to collect more information to start to understand uh, some of these relationships. Uh, we do have some relatively rudimentary ways to evaluate uh, through exposure science, you know, the effects of mixtures. We can look at, you know, relative chemical activity of different chemicals and mixtures, but we're just scratching the surface of that. But it's absolutely the direction we want to go. And uh, I would I very strongly encourage that we, uh, part of the reason that we do want to collect this data is to better understand uh, some of those questions. And if I could add to our answer, I think it might even be a really good sort of end of the show-ish kind of a thing and thinking about the future. If you think about toxicology being, you know, rats being exposed to uh, chemicals or mixtures of chemicals and then figuring out how many of them have some sort of an effect, that's not the way toxicology is done today. Today, they look actually at human cells that have, we can expose them we can see how those cells respond, and that's genetically turning on and off different genes that produce all the kinds of chemicals. They then look at that chemical cascade that turns on and off additional genes and get after what is the final products being produced out of the cell, that's molecular biology, to understand how that can impact organs. And so the future of being able to understand how uh, exposures impact our bodies is no longer looking at that. They are already today doing toxicology this way. It's called computational toxicology. And it is providing us as practitioners of exposure science information that allows us to get after these low-level low uh, exposures and understand how they can be impacting the body very specifically and very early, far before we see uh, damage in the body. And we if you're in the research area or influence research area, providing the types of exposures that you believe people have in this low level mixtures um, is what the computational toxicologists need in order to give us back the data that we're gonna wanna have. And uh, once they know what we want, they'll produce it. There's tens of thousands of people working on that worldwide. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great point, Kirk. I'll just add briefly that that's where that missing link then of understanding what those exposures are will, um, will really add to that. So we know what the effects are, and then we understand what the, the typical exposures are. That's the, the key to this and really understanding it. Before we go, uh, start with you, Dr. Sommel. Anything you'd like to add? Anything we missed? Final thoughts? Uh, I, I just wanted to just say thank you so much for, for having us today. Uh, I do think this is really the future of exposure science. I think it's a great opportunity for us as practitioners. And I hope that all of uh, you participating today or listening are, will you know, look at this topic a little further, do some research and, and try to get involved in helping us advance this notion. Kirk Phillips, final thoughts? Whether you're an environmental engineer, an industrial hygienist, a health professional, and in, or somebody that's an indoor air quality professional, a mold specialist, you, all you are all exposure scientists. And as exposure scientists, you hold a very important piece of this pie. And we together 
as a group are going to really have a terrific future. All right. You know, what I'd like to tell listeners, we're going to capture these, this chat and then we'll uh, run it by the, our guests after the show. And if there's any, anything we can add, we will do so. But I want to thank this week's guests, Dr. Jennifer Sawmill and Colonel Kurt Phillips. Great job. Uh, total worker health, total environmental or total exposure health. It's starting to come into focus a little better for me now. And I, I appreciate that. I also want to uh, let listeners know next week we're going to have a ACGIH show. We've got Jack Springston, the ACGIH Bioaerosols Committee Vice Chair, Neil Zimmerman, the ACGIH Industrial Ventilation Committee member, and Frank Mortal, their Executive Director, is going to join us next week. We're going to have a great show with the folks from ACGIH and talk about some of their new publications coming out. Uh, there's a mold publication that I know a lot of our listeners will be interested in. So this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest. Thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners and our sponsors. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening. 